0: Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. We're your host, Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And we're here to talk true crime. But before we do, we would love to shout out our three new patrons this week. This week, we have Michaela. Janine. And Jennifer. Thank you all so much for supporting Crime Salad. We really appreciate it.
1: Also, there is a content warning for this episode.
0: This case involves the sexual assault of children. Listener discretion advised. So the story of Brittany Drexel is a tough one because I feel like a lot of us, myself included, can relate. I can even admit my teenage years weren't easy at all. And looking back, along with the rebellious acts and talking back to my parents, I put myself in situations that I look back at now and think, wow, what was I thinking? How did I not get kidnapped? I'm lucky I did not meet up with the wrong person. I mean, the first time Ricky and I met was when I was 16, and I told my parents I was going to bed early, and I jumped out of my bedroom window, and we grabbed coffee at a local restaurant. They never knew. I didn't have a cell phone at the time, so yeah, I could have easily been murdered, and my parents would have never known what happened to me. With that being said, Ricky and I would never stand for blaming the victim. The only one here to blame would be the evil monster, like the one we're about to talk about in this story, who murdered young Brittany Drexel. All right, enough of that. Let's get on with the story. It was April of 2019 and 17-year-old high school junior Brittany Drexel was having a rough year. She lived in a suburb of Rochester, New York with her family, which included her mom, Dawn, her dad, Chad, and her little brother and little sister. Born to teenage parents, as an infant, she was abandoned by her biological father, only to be adopted as a toddler by her stepfather, Chad Drexel. And by all accounts, the two were extremely close. He was her real dad in every way that mattered. In fact, he was the parent Brittany felt the closest to. So when her parents separated the year prior, she was having a very difficult time adjusting to her new normal. She missed having her father in the house, which was her childhood home, a home that she would soon be losing because the Drexel family home was in foreclosure. She would soon be moving to an apartment with her mother and two younger siblings. And all of those changes had destabilized Brittany at a time in her life when she was already facing the normal challenges teens experience on their way to adulthood. Brittany was so off balance, she no longer cared about the things that were previously important to her. According to her friends and her family, she was very creative and wanted to be either a cosmetologist or a nurse. In fact, she was known to give all of her friends and family haircuts, which they said were better than anything they could get in a salon. But her dreams were on hold and she tried to deal with her abyss of emotions. She was suddenly having a hard time concentrating in classes and as a result, her grades had begun slipping. It was said she was also acting out by ignoring roles, staying out late and talking back to her mom. Her parents' divorce was affected in every aspect of her life, including her relationship with her boyfriend, John Grieco. The two had been dating on and off for two years and recently had begun fighting and arguing over the smallest of things. On two occasions, she and John broke up, which sent Brittany spiraling into feelings of hopelessness. And as a result, both times she had overdosed on her mother's pain medication, only to immediately regret her impulsive decision, which would send her to the hospital to have her stomach pumped. By all accounts, Brittany was acting out in self-destructive ways. So in April of 2009, when Brittany asked her mother if she could go 800 miles away for a spring break vacation, her mother immediately said no. While Don Drexel's reasoning was sound, it just didn't make sense to Brittany. Dawn told her daughter that the matter would also have to be discussed with her father. However, she would need both of her parents to agree and Dawn was adamantly against the idea. Dawn, in an interview with the Discovery ID channel, stated that Brittany would often try to play both parents against each other until she got what she wanted. So Don felt that it was important that even while going through this divorce, they present a united front to Britney. As expected, Chad Drexel also said no to her spring break trip. He agreed that there wouldn't be adequate adult supervision, and more importantly, Britney hadn't demonstrated the necessary maturity to be entrusted that far from home. In addition to their thoughts on why a 17-year-old shouldn't be unsupervised and out of state, Dawn also had a bad premonition. She told Brittany that she was worried she would never see her again. To complicate matters, Brittany was planning to go with older high school seniors, whom she didn't know very well, and there wouldn't be any parental supervision. Brittany felt like her feelings had been unjustly dismissed by her parents and was extremely angry. So she packed up her things and left the house, calling John and asking him to take her to a friend's home. Originally, John planned to go with Brittany to South Carolina, but unfortunately, he couldn't get the time off work, which meant if she went, she would be going alone with several other couples. Brittany didn't want to feel like she was the fifth wheel and contemplated staying home with her boyfriend. But John, in a decision he would come to regret, encouraged her to go without him. He told her it was just three days and it sounded exactly what she needed to get her mind off her family problems. John thought a few days without the stress and anxiety of home while she relaxed on the beach and soaked up some sun would give her the reset she deserved and needed. So with John's encouragement, she called her mom the next day and apologized for their fight. Then she asked one more time if she could go alone, 14 hours away by car and six states away with new and older friends. Of course, her mom, Dawn, again said no, she couldn't go and again explained why she wouldn't change her mind. From Dawn's perspective, she was pleased with Brittany's change in attitude. So when Brittany offered up an alternative, Dawn readily agreed. Brittany asked her mom if she could stay with a friend just 20 minutes away at the nearby Lake Ontario. The weather, which had just been cold and wet the week prior, had suddenly changed to a warm and toasty 83 degrees. Dawn agreed to let Brittany stay a few days with her friend as long as she could talk to a parent and ensure there was enough parental supervision. Brittany had a friend of hers pretend to be a parent and speak to her mother on the phone. Dawn agreed to let her stay and she and Brittany spoke every day on the phone, never realizing that Brittany was 800 miles away in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. While the trip was supposed to be just three days long, Brittany quickly realized she had made a mistake. The first day, she was enjoying her carefree time away from home and the beautiful, warm beaches. She went with two girlfriends and their respective boyfriends, and later, several other boys arrived as well. And the group was drinking a lot and doing heavy drugs, which was something that Brittany wasn't very comfortable with. As a result, she chose to separate herself from her group, which created some resentment. It was clear Brittany didn't enjoy their company and was intentionally spending time away from them. This further alienated Brittany from the girls, and they began to argue and fight. And as a result, Brittany mostly spent her time alone walking up and down Ocean Boulevard, which, at the time, was a seedy part of town, littered with low-rent motels and unsavory elements. A few times, Brittany was harassed and catcalled, and even once asked some strangers if they would walk her back to her motel after feeling unsafe. Brittany spent almost all of her time on the phone with her boyfriend, telling him how miserable she was and how she regretted going on the trip. The two spoke constantly while she gave him real-time updates of her days and nights. On Britney's second night there, she was able to get into an 18-and-over club called Kryptonite. There, she ran into a 20-year-old friend she knew from Rochester as a club promoter named Peter Brozowitz. Peter was staying at the Blue Water Resort. It was located 1.5 miles away from where she was staying at the Bar Harbor Motel. Once she arrived at Peter's room, she, of course, texted her boyfriend, letting him know that she made it safely. Earlier in the day, one of the girls she was staying with, Jennifer, lent Brittany a pair of shorts. And as soon as Brittany arrived at Peter's room, Jennifer changed her mind and demanded that Brittany come all the way back and return the shorts. On the surveillance video, Brittany can be seen wearing a white, black, gray, and teal-colored tank top with black shorts and white flip-flops. There were surveillance cameras that caught Brittany leaving Peter's motel at 8.48 p.m. Outside of the motel, there was also a camera that caught Brittany walking back up the strip towards Bar Harbor. Brittany texted her boyfriend and again told him she was having a terrible time and couldn't wait to leave for home the next day. She told him that she was heading back to the Bar Harbor motel and planned to stay in for the rest of the night and pack her things. John didn't want Jennifer to ruin her last night of vacation and suggested that she go out and try to have some fun. That text was sent at 9 o'clock PM and it went unanswered. 10 minutes later, John began texting her back and asking why she was staying in and trying to cheer her up. All of those texts went unanswered too. She had less than a mile back to the motel, but all activity on her phone had eerily stopped. At 9.15, John was beginning to panic and continued texting her, asking her why she wasn't responding he begged her to let him know that she was okay and expressed his fear and concern. The longer she went without answering the phone, the more concerned he became. Finally, he had no choice but to threaten to call her mom. He told her if she didn't respond immediately, he was going to call her mom and tell her where she really went. Again, he was met with silence. At that point, he began to call the friends who were with her and asked if she made it back to the room. When they said that they were still waiting for her, he asked them to go out and look for her. Some of them began walking up and down the strip, looking for her while also calling and texting her phone repeatedly. The surveillance video showed that by the time Brittany would have reached the next traffic camera, she had disappeared. However, the phone calls from her friends caused her phone to connect each time to the nearest cell tower. This is how investigators were eventually able to follow her phone.
1: Brittany's phone told a story that didn't make sense. At the rate it was connecting to different towers, it was clear that she or at least her phone was inside a moving vehicle. Cell Tower records showed that her phone, which should have been heading north, was now heading south on Highway 17, away from Myrtle Beach. Records indicated that her phone headed towards Surfside Beach, almost seven miles south of her motel, which was in the opposite direction. Had she still been walking, it would have taken her two hours to walk that far and only 15 minutes by car. According to her cell phone records, by 9.30pm, she was in Surfside. But her phone didn't stay in Surfside. Three hours after her last text to John, Brittany's phone pinged off a cell phone tower for the last time. That location was over 50 miles away between two counties, Georgetown County and McClellanville. It last placed her phone in a very isolated spot near the pole landing boat ramp and the Santee River. The area is dense with foliage and inhabited by alligators, wild boars, and snakes. It's in the country and it would only be known by locals. Eventually, hundreds of volunteers with tracking and cadaver dogs searched the inhabitable area for weeks, never finding any trace of Brittany or her phone. Now, something you should know about Brittany is that she suffered from a condition called persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous, which caused her to lose sight in her right eye. Her eye would often wander, and this was something that Brittany was very self-conscious of. And to compensate for that insecurity, she would often wear her hair so it strategically and completely covered that right eye. And as she got older, she began wearing bright blue contacts, which stopped the eye from wandering out of place. In fact, photos of her from her missing persons poster often showed Britney's signature bright blue colored eyes and hair casually draped over the affected eye. While this condition limited some of her peripheral vision, for the most part, she saw perfectly well with just her one eye. In fact, she was a star soccer player on her high school team and was incredibly fast. She was also very small in stature, just around five feet tall and 100 pounds someone could have easily mistaken Brittany for someone much younger. So with this in mind, she might appear as the perfect vulnerable prey as she walked the 1.5 miles up and down the strip back and forth to the beach each day. As a result, John knew that Brittany could likely be in trouble and had no choice but to call Dawn Drexel and tell her that Brittany was missing. Dawn had talked to Brittany earlier in the day, and she told her mom and younger sister that she was having a great time. She was going to stay in and watch movies, and she told her mom that she loved her and would see her the next day. So Dawn had a hard time reconciling the fact that Brittany was 14 hours away instead of 20 minutes away. She immediately called the Rochester Police Department, but they could do nothing. In fact, at first, they believed that Brittany had run away and would likely return when she was no longer met. This incensed Dawn, who was told nearly the same thing by the Myrtle Beach Police Department. So the next day, Dawn, her parents, two of Brittany's friends, and John Greco all headed to Myrtle Beach to look for Brittany. As far as John knew, Peter Brozowitz was the last person to see Brittany before she disappeared. Peter quickly rose to the top of the suspect list because he and his friends inexplicably checked out of their motel that night at 2am and headed home to Rochester. Once Peter arrived back in Rochester, he agreed to speak with police, but only with his attorney present. He insisted on having an attorney due to what he called repetitive questioning. But with video surveillance and Brittany's cell phone records, police were able to roll him and his friends out as suspects. However, Brittany's father felt like Peter had more information than he was sharing. He thought perhaps Brittany was lured to Myrtle Beach with the promise of a modeling job or promotion job, possibly arranged by Peter. Otherwise, he couldn't understand why Brittany would defy both her parents and head somewhere they specifically told her she wasn't allowed to go. Both Chad and Dawn immediately worried that Brittany was a victim of a human trafficking ring. As they would later discover, Myrtle Beach had the highest rate of human trafficking victims in the entire state of South Carolina. Brittany's disappearance quickly garnered national attention, and on May 11th, the Drexels appeared on the Dr. Phil show, where they confronted Paul Brozowitz, pushing her case into the national spotlight.
0: Okay, but John, come on, you have to understand, these parents are desperate. And you guys should be leaning forward to do anything and everything that you can possibly do. I mean, Peter may know something that he doesn't even understand the significance of here. This isn't about trying to throw Peter under the bus, but we've got to help these parents try to find this innocent young girl. No, Dr. Phil, Peter got thrown under the bus. Well, but he's not getting thrown under the bus today. He he is still getting thrown under the bus. No, he's not getting thrown under the bus by me here today. I've asked him very straight questions. There has been no innuendo here. I asked him what he wanted to say to set the record straight. I've given him and you the opportunity to talk. So don't say I've thrown him under the bus because I certainly have not.
1: Uh, What I have to to say is that um, when I was accused, um, not accused, but person of interest, there should be no reason whatsoever for me to, to be automatically thrown under the bus like that. That's, that's being thrown under the bus, if you ask me.
0: Chad, go ahead. All right, let's Let's let Chad speak. Chad, go ahead. Alright, so Peter, how old are you? Twenty. You're twenty. How old's my daughter? Seventeen. So you knew you were hanging out with a minor out of state, correct? Yeah. Okay, so that's my first question. And you had her in your hotel room with your friends who are much older than her as well, right?
1: Uh, one was 19, another one, another one was 20. And, uh, so my
0: point yeah. here is, you said you knew that
1: the atmosphere down there was not safe, correct? Correct. So why didn't you step up and say, it doesn't matter, Brittany, let me take you so-and-so. I can hear that you had an argument with Jen. Why? Okay, first of all, it's because I'm, not, I'm on spring break. I'm not there to babysit anybody. I don't know Brittany like that, but as I know, she was down there with... How many other friends? Um, she was at two different hotels. Um, I don't know what they did the whole week. Peter, I you're throwing yourself under the bus. You're throwing yourself under Peter did eventually tell Chad Drexel that he offered Brittany a ride back to her motel, but she declined. He also allegedly told her the drag was unsafe, but she insisted she had been walking it all week and would be perfectly fine. However, with what we find out later, it's more likely that Peter only said he offered to give her a ride to make himself look better.
0: On June 6th, John Walsh featured Britney's case on America's Most Wanted, showing the last known surveillance video of Britney's last moments caught on film. But eventually, Britney's case went cold until 2012. That is when police began revisiting the sex offenders who were in the area at the time of Brittany's disappearance. Of course, they were all originally contacted within days of her going missing, but now they intended to do a more in-depth investigation. One of those sex offenders was named Raymond Moody. When he was first contacted in the days following Britney's disappearance, he told investigators he was out of town during the relevant time periods, which was corroborated by someone he was in a relationship with. However, he became a person of interest when investigators discovered that he had received a speeding ticket on the morning of April 26th in Surfside, South Carolina, which confirms his alibi is a lie. He was in town. That is where Moody was living at the time of Britney's disappearance, in a long-stay motel. Because he lied to investigators, he rose to the top of their list, which prompted them to ask the public for any information they had on Moody in relation to their case. South Carolina law enforcement also sent a forensics team into his former motel room at the Sunset Lodge, where he was living at the time. Investigators collected bags of evidence, including carpet samples, which testing indicated was presumptive positive for human blood. Investigators learned that Moody had a criminal history in California where he served just 21 years of his 42-year sentence for kidnapping and sexually assaulting seven girls. While the sick individual preferred young children, he was a predator of opportunity and was known on occasion to assault older women, even in their 20s, especially if they looked younger. One of those assault victims from his California case was Carrie Harding, who was just eight years old at the time she was kidnapped and assaulted by Moody. When he became a suspect in Britney's disappearance in 2012— Hardy contacted Myrtle Beach Police as well as the press to let them know what kind of man they were dealing with. It was 1983 when she was walking to an adjacent neighborhood hoping to play with friends when Moody came up beside her in his van and told her she was heading into a construction area where she wasn't allowed to walk. He told her it was dangerous to be out alone and offered to give her a ride home. However, she declined and within a few minutes realized he was right and began walking back in the other direction towards where Moody was parked with his van. She told Channel 13 WHAM affiliate that Moody put his hands over my mouth and around my waist and put me in the passenger seat of the car, and he drove from there about two or three miles away to an undeveloped housing track. She asked what they were going to do there, and he said, we're going to screw. At that time, she didn't know what those words meant, but for years, she would never forget them. Moody spent the next hours violently assaulting the little girl, And when he was done, she got back in the van and he told her he would take her home because it was unsafe for her to be out alone. She began crying and begging to use the bathroom and he finally relented. He pulled over on a side street, opened the back doors of the van and hung on tightly to her long hair. He told her not to make any noise and to pee in the street. When she looked down, there was a pool of blood falling to the ground, which made her scream. In that second, he let go of her hair for a moment, and that is when she made her escape and ran to safety. A few days later, she remembered a sticker he had on the back window of the van. That sticker was used for entrance in and out of a military base. With this important detail within a few days, he was arrested. Harding was outraged to hear that just a few years after his release from jail in California, he was a person of interest in the 2005 disappearance of a 28-year-old woman named Crystal Soles, as well as the 2009 disappearance of Brittany Drexel. She stated, quote, No one should get a second chance to hurt a child, end quote. <music> Moody was paroled after only serving half of his sentence in 2004 to his hometown of Georgetown, South Carolina, Eventually, due to a lack of evidence, Moody was never arrested. However, investigators officially declared Britney as dead, believing that Britney was kidnapped as she was walking along the Myrtle Beach Strip alone, where she was held against her will for an indeterminate period of time, sexually assaulted and then killed. Moody remained the only viable suspect in Britney's disappearance until 2006. Early in June of 2010, a 37-year-old man named Timothy Deshawn Taylor was arrested and accused of trying to kidnap a 20-year-old woman in Myrtle Beach. That woman claimed two men jumped out of the van and tried to abduct her. She elbowed one of the men in the face and then escaped. Police thought this attempted abduction could be related to Britney's case. But again, there wasn't enough evidence to lead to an arrest. And eventually, Timothy Taylor went to prison on unrelated drug charges. And then in 2016, FBI got involved in Britney's case, believing it could be related to human sex trafficking. They got a shocking tip from a jailhouse informant who confessed that he was friends with Timothy Taylor's son in 2009. At the time, his son, who went by Deshaun, was only 16 years old. And in 2016, Deshaun was arrested in an armed robbery where he was the getaway driver. And the informant who was confessing was named Taekwon Brown. He was serving a 25-year sentence for involuntary manslaughter in a different case. He told authorities he was present during the final terrifying moments of Britney's life. He told FBI agent Garrick Muniz that he visited the Taylor residence, which was a drug stash house in the McClellanville area, which was one of the overlapping counties where Brittany's phone last pinged. The informant told the FBI that he saw Deshaun Taylor, who was just 16 years old at the time, sexually abusing Brittany Drexel. He said that they were tricking her out in a, quote, human trafficking situation, end quote, The informant stated that there was a line of men waiting to abuse her, but as he was in the backyard giving Deshawn's father some money, he saw Brittany make an escape attempt by running out the back door. Eventually, several men caught up with her and pistol whipped her, dragging her back into the house. And a few minutes later, he heard gunshots and then saw the men carry out a rolled-up rug with presumably Brittany's body inside. The informant said that the men disposed of Brittany's body in a nearby well-known alligator pit. And so when the FBI told the Drexel family what they believed happened to Brittany, they were devastated. Agents told them that they believed that Brittany was dead after being held for days against her will before she was eventually murdered. Chad Drexel told reporters that, quote, these last two days since we got the news have been an emotional roller coaster. As a father, I have a sense of duty to protect my children, but in this case, I can't. Brittany is my heart. She was my right hand. Please help us find our daughter's killer or killers. All I want is justice for my daughter Brittany. I'm begging anyone out there who knows who killed our daughter to please help us bring her remains back home to her family, end quote. Eventually, Deshawn Jr. was given a polygraph test where he failed every answer, including when asked for his own name. Deshawn was so nervous that his results were inconclusive. In the meantime, the informant's story didn't stand up to renewed scrutiny when it began changing In Taquan's next version, he said that Brittany was killed days later because the press surrounding her kidnapping and not killed in an escape attempt. The details were inconsistent with Deshawn's school records, proving he couldn't have been involved. While Deshawn was officially named a suspect in 2016 due to conflicting evidence, he was eventually removed from the suspect list which makes the details they shared with the Drexel family extraordinarily cruel, especially because none of it turns out to be true. It was just a jailhouse informant hoping to get some time knocked off his sentence. Authorities were embarrassed and would later find themselves on the end of a lawsuit for malicious prosecution from the Taylor family. In April of 2019, the FBI offered a $25,000 reward for any information that might lead to the arrest and conviction of a suspect in Brittany's case. All remained quiet on the case until May 16, 2022, when the Georgetown County Sheriff's Department announced that the human remains that were found in the Harmony Township neighborhood on May 7, 2022, were officially identified from DNA and dental records as belonging to To Brittany Drexel. Brittany's remains were found on property currently owned by Raymond Moody, who was initially being held on obstruction of justice charges stemming from his interview in the days following Brittany's disappearance when he said that he was out of town at the time of her abduction. Within days, police had increased the charges to kidnapping, sexual assault, and manual strangulation. Police believe when he got his speeding ticket that day, after Britney's disappearance, he was just coming back from burying her body. When Carrie Harding heard that Moody was arrested for Britney's murder, she was devastated. She gave details of her abduction to law enforcement back in 2012 and worried about all the women and children he may have harmed in the years he was allowed to remain free. Harding told the press that, you know when you're the sixth of seven girls? What you know for sure is, is that he's never going to stop doing this. She believed the light on Crime California parole board has blood on their hands. She just doesn't know how many people he has hurt. But she has little doubt it was more than just Brittany Drexel and the still-missing Crystal Souls. She said she did everything she could to convince South Carolina in 2012 that they had the right man, she stated, quote, I did everything I thought I could do to help them have the evidence to support that he had done this to Brittany. For instance, I told them to get my records here and compare them to Brittany's records, and they did, and the similarities were uncanny, end quote. She was sickened to learn that he was still raping, murdering, and ruining lives, and she hoped that this time he would be put away forever. In a press conference, Georgetown County Sheriff Carter Weaver announced that Moody was arrested and had an extensive criminal sex offender history. He was a level three sex offender, which meant that he had the highest propensity to re-offend. Yet California paroled him to South Carolina without even a warning of what he was capable of. Weaver went on to say, quote, "'What happened to Britney? "'Where did it happen? "'How did it happen? "'And why did it happen?' The why may never be known or understood, but today this task force can confidently and without hesitation answer the rest of those questions along with who is responsible. Moody is now facing charges of murder, kidnapping and first degree criminal sexual conduct. Brittany's parents are now hoping to find justice for their daughter. Her father, Chad Drexel said that he is hoping that Moody will get the death penalty. He said, I am an eye for an eye kind of guy he's going to have to answer someone, end quote. Because this case hasn't been fully adjudicated, there will be more details forthcoming either at his trial or sentencing hearing. We will keep you updated as best we can on social media as those details become available. And this concludes our case for today. Thank you all so much for listening to Crime Salad. We will see you next week.
1: Prime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.
0: On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what was it. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.